So we are in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. We're continuing our series looking at the beginning of the church. And we're still in the book of Acts. This, uh, no, we're not still in the book of Acts this morning. We spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. And Acts, just to recap, it's, a, it's narrative literature, meaning that it tells a story. That's what the book of Acts is, is intending to do, to tell a story. And so we've been following that story, right? We've looked at the birth of the church. We've looked at the way that the church gathered in the early days. Uh, we followed that story. We looked at the early persecution of the church, how it scattered, right, and how the gospel scattered with it. We looked at Paul's conversion story, what happens when the one persecuting the church actually becomes a Christian, right, and becomes an apostle that's spreading the word of God everywhere, right? Last week, Dave looked at Acts 20 and Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and we talked about the values of a, of a church, right? And this week, I want to jump to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. So we're going to leave Acts, we're going to leave narrative literature. And we're going to look at this letter that Paul wrote after his arrest when he was a prisoner in Rome. And now the New Testament is full of letters like these. Uh, and the difference between a letter like Ephesians and a book like Acts is that Acts is detailing a history, right? And Paul's letters, these were direct teaching, right? Each, each one had a teaching goal, and Ephesians is centered around the identity of the church in Christ. And Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter, of this book, detailing the work that God has done. And in the last three chapters, he talks more about how the church could live out that identity. And so that's kind of this book in a nutshell. There's three chapters about all the work that God has done for the church and then there are three chapters that talk about how the church can live in a way that's worthy of all that God has done. Now, before he ever even gives them a command, right, before Paul ever even tells this church what to do, he spends so many words just establishing what God has done for them in grace, right? And sometimes we can get ahead, right, and we want to go right to the action, but we need to stop and, and think about what God has done. And so we're opening up to Ephesians 4. This is where he starts to get into some of the more practical ways to live out that identity in Christ. Uh, and this is where he gives his first command, right? And what's the first command or the first imperative that he gives here? What's the first request? He says in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Right? This is the first actionable step in the book of Ephesians. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. The calling you have received. Now in chapter 1, verse 18, this is still early in the book, if we were to flip back to chapter 1. Paul prays this prayer. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? 
So he prays this before sharing all the marvelous implications of the gospel that, that we've been saved by grace through faith, that it's not of our own works, but it's the gift of God, that we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive, right? that we were apart from God and the community of God, but we've been brought near and reconciled by the work of Jesus on the cross. This is what he's praying. We'd understand this calling that our heart, eyes of our hearts would be open to understand this. So if you haven't read those first chapters or read it lately, I recommend going back after this and just looking at those first three chapters. The calling that the church has received is a gift, right? It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's salvation. It's invitation to the family of God to be united with Christ and the church, being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is all in Ephesians. The indwelling of God himself. This is the call that Paul is talking about. He's talked about the call, and now he's telling his readers to walk in a manner worthy of that call. Right? So we've established that. That's just establishing the context of, of chapter 4, how we got to where we are. He's established the call, and now he's telling his readers to walk in a manner worthy of that call. And well, what does that look like? Paul tells us, he says, with all humility and gentleness. This is in the beginning of chapter 4. With patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's just look at each of those. Let's walk through each of those. These are the recipe for unity, right? Humility and gentleness. These are the first two that he mentions. And, and these two couple well together to be both humble and gentle, right? This is supposed to categorize the people of the church. You can find Jesus using these words, or very similar words, to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. That's the way Jesus describes himself, gentle and humble in heart. And so you know Paul is not just pulling these qualities out of thin air, right, when he says that we should walk in humility and gentleness. Right. Other ways these words have been translated are lowly, right, instead of humility, and meek instead of gentle. And, and lowly is a helpful translation for this word because the word that's used here uh, in the Greek, it was not a favorable word in Paul's day. Right? We would say humility is a virtue today, but that's because of the influence of Jesus on our culture. We may think that we're in a culture that's absent from the influence of Jesus. No, Jesus is the one who made humility cool, right? Jesus is the one who made humility desirable. It, Jesus is the one who made humility a virtue, right? To be humble and gentle, these were not elevated qualities in the current culture that we're, that we're reading from here. Greeks and Romans, they didn't see it that way. It was, it was representative of a crouching slave, right? And here's Paul saying that the Christian life is categorized by this quality, right? Seeing the value in others, imitating Christ in his humility and also in his meekness, right? In his gentleness, uh, John Stott, a commentator, he describes meekness as the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. 
right? Meekness is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. Right? Paul says the church should be humble and gentle. Now, the next two ways to walk that he mentions are patience and bearing with one another. Right? And to put that bluntly, he's telling them the way that they should respond when they're really annoyed by other people. Right? The way we should respond to people who aggravate us. Right? And it's inevitable. When you look at how closely these folks were living with one another, there, there's no peace, there's no unity without patience and long-suffering. Right? And that patience and long-suffering is done in love, he says. He says, in fact, all of it has to be wrapped in love. Love that's rooted in Christ's love. In another letter that he wrote to the Colossians, Paul tells the church that love is the perfect bond of unity. It's Colossians 3.14. Love is the perfect bond of unity. There's consistency in Paul's message, even from church to church. And that sounds very similar to our next verse, right? Because verse 3, Paul says to walk with all of these qualities, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of of peace. Now, if we read the first half of this letter to the Ephesians, we'd see that the unity of the Spirit is a spiritual reality that cannot be taken away. It cannot be undone. The church is united by the Spirit of God. That goes for the local church, right? Like a church like this, and it goes for the worldwide church, the big C church. And that unity from God is a gift. It's a reality. But, but here, at the same time, Paul says it's something that needs to be kept, something that requires people's effort in keeping, and it ought to be kept through the bond of peace. See, we can sometimes think about the early church as ideal and today's church as messed up and, and maybe the fact that we're millennia removed from those days, just over time, the church has lost its way, but it had it right back then. But if we dig into the New Testament, we'll see that even back then, the church had lots of issues. And this is why Paul needed to write so many letters. Right? They're not letters telling everybody what a great job they're doing. Right? He wrote letters to remind them of the gospel and to call them to live lives that picture the work of Christ, right? the work that Christ has done in them. And if he's calling them to put effort into unity, well, we can assume that there were threats to unity. Right? If, if he's calling them to put effort into staying united, then we know that there's something coming against unity. Right? Something coming against the practical, visible unity of the church. And it takes some effort, apparently, to make this spiritual reality a visible reality. Paul says, make every effort to keep that unity through the bond of peace. Right? And how do they keep peace? He's given them the recipe, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, love, right? And through peace, that spiritual reality, that, that unity, that oneness is made visible. People can see. People can see these people are united because of the way that they treat each other. 
And I love, um, you rarely see Paul tell the church to do something without rooting it first in the grace of God. That's one thing I love about scripture. And you might miss it. Sometimes we might miss that he's rooted these commands in the grace of God. You might feel like we're just being told what to do. But look, when you start reading scripture, look at each time you're told to do something. Usually there's something rooting, rooting you in the grace of God. Not saying do this so that you're loved by God, but do this because you have been loved by God. But the Christian life is a response to grace. It's not striving to get God's love, right? It's living out the love that God has already given us, right? And to drive home the spiritual reality of the unity of the church, right? He's trying to tell them that Christ has bought this for you. This is how you should live. And again, this isn't just the local church, not just between individuals, but the global church, Right Between churches, between congregations, he says it right here in verse 4. There is one body, one body, right? One church, and the church is one body that shares this relationship with God. And that body language comes from earlier in Ephesians where the church is called the body of Christ, right? We share this relationship with God, and we have this relationship with one another because of God. And listen to Paul describe the church's relationship with God, with the triune God, right? The Trinity, Spirit, Son, Father. In this order he shares, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, right? The one church shares one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Do you think he's trying to drive home the idea of one, right? How many times is he saying one here? He wants them to get it. The church is one, right? Even if we don't act like it. Paul doesn't say, hey, you need to be united, so do all these things. No, he's saying you are united, so live like it. The church is united with one another and with Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 2.16, Paul says that God's people were reconciled in one body through the cross. So, see, we might come to our belief in Jesus one by one, right? but our relationship with him isn't solitary. We're united in our reconciliation to him, one body, sharing one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of Yeah, so let's look at all this in the light of the work of Jesus, in light of the gospel. Right? There, there is, and I think we touched on this, there's a bit of a conflict here between the fact that this unity of the spirit is indestructible, right? Given by God, and at the same time, Paul wants us to keep it, right? He wants us to make every effort to keep it. And he talks about unity and oneness as if they're given, yet at the same time instructs the church as if disunity is a given, right? As if disunity is a given, something that we can just expect, that we're going to experience this division, this disunity. And we've seen that. We've talked about that. 
whether it's a spirit of competition between local churches, a spirit of superiority when it comes to secondary beliefs and practices that causes us to be disrespectful to one another, or even issues within the local church, right? Warring desires, uh, theological pet peeves or theological pet issues that, uh, that we make more important, right, than unity. Uh, warring desires, unmet expectations, right? And it's un understandable, right? And we're going to have these relational difficulties. But how do we reconcile that both separation and unity are realities? Right? The best way I've heard it explained is how I talk to it with the kids. It's the analogy of a family, right? The theologian John Stott, he explains it this way in the commentary I was reading as I was preparing this. And if you can picture a family, a mom, a dad, a couple of kids, right? I know every family is different, but just picture a family, right? They all start out great. Marriage, children, life. But the family, for whatever reason, ends up separating, right? Disintegrating. The parents get divorced. The kids grow up. They all live in different places. They all fight whenever they see each other. Right? Some of them even change their last names because they hate the family so much. And while they don't look like a family anymore, at the end of the day, the bond that made them a family to begin with hasn't changed. Right? Father is still father. Mother is still mother. Siblings are still siblings. They're, they're disintegrated, but they're still one family. They actually can't change that. But how much better if they lived into that bond instead of in opposition to it, right? How much better if they lived into that bond instead of opposition to it? And by that, I mean an ideal world where that can happen in a healthy way, right? I don't mean like somebody going and getting, uh, jumping into an unhealthy family and getting steamrolled by them and like just being a doormat. That's not what I mean. But what if it looks like the way we want it to look, right? Right. That bond is there. How much better if we all lived into that bond instead of in opposition to it, right? It's like that with the church. We have so many denominations, so many traditions, so many warring factions. But like it or not, what has bonded us together is indestructible. Right? Reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Children of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, the building blocks of his temple. These are all the ways that just even in Ephesians, Paul talks about the church. And this translates to a smaller scale, right? The local church where you feel it in real time, right? Where it's not just ideas that you're warring against from other churches, but actual people, right? Sometimes that can happen. And that's where humility and gentleness are needed on a daily basis, where patience and long-suffering are needed on a daily basis because you can't get a group of people together who won't annoy each other from time to time, right? And annoy sometimes, annoy might be too mild of a word, right? It's, it's assumed. It's assumed. Paul takes it for granted, and he keeps calling us to keep the unity, to live out this oneness. So how can we make every effort to keep that unity? 
Right? And Dave touched on it. We look to Jesus. Right? Paul is, is essentially telling us to follow Jesus. He's, what he's saying is actually pretty simple. It's not simple in action, but it's a pretty, like, it's a repeated, like, method for dealing with this issue. Follow Jesus. Right? Paul is essentially telling us to follow Jesus, to walk in a way that's worthy of our calling. Right? To walk in a way that's worthy of our calling, that means walking behind Jesus. Right? Open up the Gospels. Look at how Jesus lived. Be willing to be lowly because your Savior was lowly. Be willing to be gentle because he has been gentle with you. Be willing to be patient and long-suffering in love because he loved you that way first. And I'll close with this. Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, this just really encapsulates the whole thing. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 2, 5. Who existing in the form of God, right, Jesus is God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of what? A servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus.